This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Here we go with the second half of my conversation with Howard Schultz. If you haven't heard part one yet, consider listening. It's full of personal anecdotes that help make sense of the man. In particular, a troubling childhood that he says played a big role in shaping his business policies and intense drive. Coming up, we're gonna hear some of the extraordinary work he did with Starbucks, like covering college tuition and ideas he has to get America back on track again. I want you to come away with the impression, as I have, that this is a most unusual man who deserves understanding and study because his personal and professional story holds lessons for us all. And today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works. And for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And now, Howard Schultz. So, long story short, you achieve great success. You uh, introduce America to a new language of coffee, new products like Frappuccino. Uh, you have the Beanstalk program. Even part-timers can get equity in the company. So unlike your father, these people could start to accumulate what we call capital. You also made a point and practice it. You said about commerce and social responsibility, business social responsibility. They're not two opposite ends. They're one and the same. Describe yes. that. I've always had a feeling that this corporate social responsibility as an adjacency to the business is not something that is workable. It certainly, it sounds nice, and you can write a check and issue a press release, but to me, what we try to do is integrate the responsibility of giving back, integrating that into the strategy of the business. And so, so it becomes part of the body. Yeah, so the, the, the core purpose and reason for being, going back to what you said earlier about the business, was to achieve the fragile balance between profit and responsibility. And the responsibility was to demonstrate that we always had to do more to share the success of the company. And what we learned was two things. One, success is best when it's shared. And second, not every business decision is an economic one. Fast forwarding to 2007, 2008, you'd step down. Mm-hmm. Somehow the company started to lose its way, and yes. you recognized 2007, 2008, that it could go the way of a Sears. It may be around, but it's going to be a husk of itself. You could lose everything you had built. So you bring yourself back in. Before describing how you turned it around, one of the decisions you did make is you weren't going to drop the insurance, even though you had every reason in the world to do it. You kept that. Even though the insurance could cost more than a coffee beans, you were going to keep that. Yeah. So this is, uh, as you know, 2007, 2008 was the cataclysmic financial crisis. That coupled with some self-induced mistakes, Starbucks was in big trouble. And uh, when I came back, uh, one of our large institutional shareholders came to me and said, every company in America has license now to cut all kinds of benefits. This is the moment in time where you could finally cut health insurance and save all this money and give it back to the shareholders. And I said, listen, if we were to cut the health insurance, we would fracture the culture and trust of our people. There's no way I can do that. I won't do it. And basically he said to me, well, check the quarterly ownership of the company. Next quarter you'll see that, that we are going to be out. And he was right. And he, he uh, reduced his position by almost 100%. He made a big mistake. The stock is up 25,000% since then. 
And I've seen him many times before since that time. Success no hard, is the best revenge. Yeah, no hard feelings, <laughs> but I think you got to stand for principle. And you know, the hardest part of leadership is when the wind is not. Um, well, that uh, that gets to the really poignant part. Yeah. You had to close down stores. You had to lay people off at headquarters. In fact, yeah. they had to turn in their prized aprons, yes. green aprons. You knew from your own past what this meant to people. They yeah. weren't just numbers. One says, "Oh, we have to do it." You, you, Describe yeah. what you went through and what you learned from that experience, saving the company, yeah. having to make these decisions, for which went against everything you had tried to do. When I came back, uh, I realized we had perhaps six to eight months left of survival, believe it or not. That's how bad it was. And uh, insolvency was a real issue. And I had to make the very, very tough choice. In order to save the company, we had to close, close to 1,000 stores and for the first time in history, asked people to leave the company. I stood up in front of the entire organization and uh, told people with honesty and transparency and great emotion what we had to do and why. And I apologized that as leaders and as the chairman of the company, even though I wasn't the CEO at the time, I had, I had let them down. And it was brutal. I wanted to see the name of everyone on the page who was going to be asked to leave because I knew these people. I had worked with them for 10, 20 years. I knew their families. It was a brutal, emotional time. We tried to do it as respectful as possible, with as much severance as possible. But it was probably the toughest moment I've had at Starbucks in almost 40 years. By the way, on a much lighter note, I'm glad you didn't sacrifice breakfast sandwiches. (laughs) 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 But uh, so you, you, you do the turnaround, but now you do another extraordinary innovation, and that is you believed in college. You thought thought that as in your own life experience. This is a ticket to uh, upward mobility. You realized a lot of the partners, as you call your people at uh, Starbucks, were not going to college. You had the scandal in this country, which is what I want to discuss a little bit later. Six years, 50% of kids don't finish college. We have $1.6 trillion of student debt. Uh, it, it, it's horrible. But at the time, Starbucks... We mentioned earlier, $1,000 to help tuition, right. but you realized that wasn't going to do it. Right. Uh, so describe the big breakthrough with ASU and how you actually made an idea of going online a reality for thousands of uh, Starbucks partners. Well, you bring up a good point about 60%, 70% of people who go to school don't finish. Don't finish and the primary reason is their level of debt. So we do a cultural an audit of our people every year and, and asked them a lot, a lot of questions. And one of the top boxes in the audit was uh, that people would love to go back to school. And it just dawned on us that we had so many people at Starbucks who had gone to college and couldn't finish. So we got together and said, let's crack the code. for the, Let's do something no one's ever done before. People thought we were crazy. Uh, and I just said, there's got to be a way to figure this thing out. And I had met this extraordinary person over the last couple of years, named Michael Crow. I don't know if you've met him or not. No. Who is the president of ASU. Now, ASU now has 100,000 students in a state school. He's a, he's a force of nature. I went to Michael Crow, who's a big, big thinker, like, and I just said, let's co-author a program that's not been done before where we could give free college tuition to Starbucks employees. And so we got together, and this is really an interesting thing because this is a partnership with a public company a state university, and the U.S. government because Pell Grants, Pell, Grants. Pell Grants became the unlock. 
And between the three entities, we figured out a way to basically provide free college tuition because one of the secrets of, of college and universities is the amount of marketing they spend to attract students. So we could deliver thousands of students to ASU without a cost of customer acquisition. And once they understood that, the online education gave everybody the flexibility and very little incremental cost for ASU. And so we've got 10,000 students now graduating from ASU. And I, I gave the commencement address two years ago, one of the highlights of my life and seeing what we've been able to do. Those kids in the audience yeah. from Starbucks? Yeah. This is a scalable program that, that every company in America could do, not only with ASU but other companies that un unfortunately few have adopted. I think Uber is going to be the next one is what I hear. But of all the things we've done, one of the most gratifying examples of capitalism, which has now been so vilified, is what good we could do when your heart and conscience is in the right place, when you realize that the, the role and responsibility of business is not just to make money. That is a manifestation of the role and responsibility of business. And it uh, wasn't easy. A lot of kids, you know, oh. after six months, you, you realize you, you had to make some changes to make this a reality, not just something out there. Yeah, we had to make some changes. Uh, we also wanted to provide the same college opportunity for uh, the number of veterans who, who work at Starbucks. And this is something very interesting. Let, let, let's go sure. to that. Okay. The only touching you had with the military was just a brief one in 1972, whether you're going to get drafted or not, and the draft goes, and so it becomes right. moot. But... Uh, you realized you knew about the military but knew really nothing about it. You yeah. went out of your comfort zone. Start with that trip to West Point and how you actually got nitty-grittily involved in doing something for veterans. As you said, I, I embarrassingly did not have much exposure to the military. And I was asked to give a talk about leadership at West Point. I had never been to West Point. I, I went there not unlike Normandy, I was in awe of the place. Just so stunning, the history, and once again, the commitment of these young kids to sacrifice so much for the country. And I spent the entire day there, and it was time for me to give this talk in the afternoon. And I, I turned to the superintendent, who was a one-star, two-star general, and I said, you know, General, I don't think I'm worthy of giving a talk on leadership to these kids when they are the leaders. They are the ones who should be teaching us. So I want to turn the talk around and, and have a conversation. So we ended up sitting in a circle with 50, 60 of the cadets and just talking together. I just did not think I was worthy. When I left West Point, I realized I needed to learn more. Then something happened, another kind of stroke of luck, and that was Secretary Gates was retiring as Secretary of Defense and moved to Seattle with his wife and phone rang one day. It was a friend of, of ours, mutual friend, and said, uh, Secretary Gates would like to talk to you about joining the Starbucks board. I felt like, are you kidding me? And Secretary Gates came on the Starbucks board and within a couple of years started talking to Sherry and I about our family foundation and his concern about the million plus kids who were coming back from 9-11, post 9-11, with transitional issues. And we started getting deeply involved in understanding our role and responsibility to people who had worn the cloth of the nation and what we could do for them. And so Starbucks has hired almost 20,000 veterans or spouses. We've opened 50 Starbucks stores near or adjacent to military bases. You worked on the spouses? Yeah. 
And our Family Foundation has now opened 18 transitional training centers on bases. I've spoke to Marines in, uh, and people in the Army. I've visited bases in Kuwait. Uh, I've certainly been to Walter Reed and to the Intrepid and understand the sacrifice. And then I got deeply involved in the last year in understanding some of the issues. And one of the things that really has bothered me is that the VA has a, and people can't believe this, has a budget. $200 billion. It's, it's, it's... For what? Yeah, a $200 billion government agency that, unfortunately, just to say it politely, doesn't serve the needs of its customers the way it should. So you achieve real success there. You do other amazing things. One of the most moving parts of the book is about uh, West Virginia, your visit there, the opioid crisis, creating jobs with small businesses, the, the, the bands, and uh, making those jobs yeah. real, working with the local organizations. You talk about learning through trial and error, like China. You learned you can't run, micromanage it from Seattle, yes. things like that. So let's get to uh, the issue at hand. Uh, I know what you're going to say, but I have to ask it. Uh, yeah. Are you running? I, yeah. Three months, I'll make a decision. Okay, I'll answer that for okay, you. Okay, go ahead. Uh, but uh, but uh, first, why three months? Because only, only in August, September, are people really going to wake up to what's happening to the Democratic Party when they have those debates. Right. In campaigns, oftentimes it doesn't click until the last two or three weeks. You may uh, you have a lot of time to get that critical 15% next year where you're in the debate and then you are equal to the other two Yeah. Uh, where you could uh, take off and win a plurality of the votes. Why this three-month uh, deadline? Uh, why not yeah. just say, okay, we'll know in the fall of next year whether this is really going to work or not. Well, I, I think you've described it perfectly, with, with one exception. And I think I need the three months to really see if I'm the right person to be potentially the next president of the United States. The next president of the United States has to be the right person, given how critical the issues are we're facing here and, and, and abroad. I want to travel the country and, and really be with the American people. Also, clearly, I'm trying to do this in a way that has not been done before. And I have to be convinced that I can ignite a national movement and that the American people are willing to embrace what I'm trying to do. I do believe there's a path to 270. I do believe that if we proceed, we'll be on the ballot of every, every state. Right. I also believe that the presidential elections in the last 30 years have been defined pretty much by 8 to 10 battleground states. Well, you make the point. If you have three real candidates, almost every state, most of them come and play. Yeah. And so I need the next 90 days to just understand what this landscape is about. And I, I really feel like I'm finding my voice and, I'm, and the way people are responding to me, I know that people agree with me. They know something's seriously wrong. Why have you left the Democratic Party? You've yeah. been with it your whole life. You and your wife gave a lot of money over the years yeah. to various candidates. Yeah. Why do you feel it, it, it left you, that it's not the party you once? Yeah. Well, I think what you just said, I feel like the party has left me. I don't feel like I'm, I recognize how far left they're going, but it's beyond the Democratic Party. It's just, I have come to the, the firm conclusion that the two-party system is completely broken. It's corrosive. It's why, cor why is that? Is it because of primaries where you fear well, you're going to get primaried by the activists? What, why this sudden... Well, sir, well certainly gerrymandering has, has added to the serious... Where candidates pick the voters rather than voters pick the candidates? Yes. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's worse than that. I mean, I think when you, when you look at the issues of the day, 
for eight years during the Obama administration, Republicans banged on Obama every day for reducing the debt and the deficit. Last two years, Republican president, we haven't heard a word from one Republican. Uh, we have 75% of the American people want a sensible conclusion to immigration reform. We can't get it. We have a health care crisis. We have an education system that's broken. We have an opioid crisis. 40% of people in America, families, don't have $400. These are issues that should be solved, and they're solvable. But they're not solvable because people are so steeped in their own ideology and self-interest. And I think there's a need for a centrist position. So describe what you bring that the others don't Well, to, to the public square. Yeah. Well, certainly no one that I can see who's running for office has had the executive experience that I've had. People talk about creating jobs. They talk about transforming health care. They talk about education. I have done it. Do you make that point when you talk to these audiences? Well, I make that point, but I'm, you know, I, 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 the point I'm trying to make, though, is that I, I feel so strongly with a deep sense of sensitivity that I've w walked in the shoes of people who have been left behind. I've lived in two worlds, and those two worlds give me a unique perspective. But also, I've built a business in 77 countries. Asia Pacific is going to be the primary region where America must establish economic growth and trade. And here we are, we're, we're not involved in TPP, we're not involved in what China is doing with one road, one belt. Somebody joked about TPP, if they named it uh, instead of Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Trump-Pacific Partnership, it might get traction. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think, listen, these are well-intentioned people, but I, I, what I bring is a wealth of experience at the executive level. People say, well, you don't have political experience. Well, I, you know, I've negotiated in 77 countries in building a great enduring business. Starbucks may not be a proxy for political experience, but the experience I have far, far outweighs anybody who currently is running for president on the Democratic side. What's your theme? I mean, Obama, after his speech of 2004, is going to be the healer. Yeah. Uh, JFK, get America moving again. Trump, make America great again. How would you describe your theme? I'm going to answer that just kind of off the cuff, but it's, I'm going to try and unify the American people and bring people together by establishing a centrist position that demonstrates the fact that there are good ideas on both sides and that we can come together as a country and that this is a person, a leader who you can trust, who's going to be there every day caring for you and bring dignity and honor back to the Oval Office. Now, critics will say, what's your problem? Unemployment is down, wages are up, labor force participation rate is moving up, people are coming back in the workforce who dropped out, business spending is moving up. Things are on the mend. What, what's your problem? And yet 60% of the American people believe the government isn't working for them. 40, as I said, 40% of the American families don't have $400. Clearly, we have a bifurcated economy. This president has used the stock market as a proxy for the economic upturn. The 21% tax rate in corporations and what we're seeing right now is not going to last. There are serious economic issues that what must be dealt with not the least of which is we must make the greatest investment into the country, which is K through 12 education. I want to get to that, but you say, I want to first get your comment. You said kids and projects today don't have op the opportunities I had. Why is that? I mean, it would seem to be more open than ever before. Well, I think that the promise of the country and the American dream is not as accessible to the kids who are growing up in projects today, especially kids of color. That should be unacceptable. If we're sitting with a group of people, as I have just two days ago in Cleveland, 
and uh, people say to me across the board that they no longer believe in the American dream. They know it's shattering to me. And I think the, the President of the United States has a moral obligation, moral responsibility to restore the faith in the promise of the country. So let's take education. Schools have been failing a lot of kids, not even, even the basics. Yeah. What's your feeling on school choice, giving uh, parents choice, even if there's a good school yeah. in the neighborhood? may not be right for that particular uh, kid. Sure. What do we do about uh, how, how do we break the monopoly with is not producing what it should be producing? Well, I think parents should have choice. I think the, the issue is the public school system in America uh, is now, I think, 25th, 26th in the world, uh, which I think is hard for me to understand. But listen, we're not attracting and retaining quality teachers because they're not being paid enough. Kids do not learn the same way today as they did 20 years ago. We need to reimagine how we're teaching kids. So do you believe in expanding charter schools? Accountability does shape people yeah. up. Yeah, I, it, it, I don't think I believe in expanding charter schools, but that's not the answer. The answer is we need to restore a commitment to the investment in K through 12. And uh, what people, that, what people the, will say we, we spend a lot on education, 20,000, but there's no 30,000 per kid. Yeah. What's it gotten us? But where's the accountability right. and, and the outcome? And we're measuring the wrong things. We need to measure, measure outcomes and we need to have accountability. In addition to K through 12, just going back to colleges and universities, one of the things that really concerns me is I don't think a college and university should be allowed to accept any federal aid without producing graduation rates. So why, uh, why are college costs going up sticker price two to three times the rate of inflation when, uh, when you have somebody like Mitch Daniels of Purdue who next year through all those innovative programs yeah. Nominal dollars it will cost a kid less in 2020 to go to Purdue than it did in 2012. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think Mitch Daniels and Purdue is the poster child for demonstrating that these costs are out of control. The administrative costs, the marketing costs, uh, there's no doubt that there is a lot of waste in the system and we need to hold colleges and universities accountable. But again, what we're talking about right now is the elephant in the room and it's, this is leadership. This is accountability. This is measuring results. And is it systemic? Is the very thing like Pell Grants and student loans, in effect, allowing universities to take the money, jack up the price, get more money, jack up the price, and the student is left holding the bag? Absolutely, it is systemic. Another issue, which we haven't discussed, is that why is the government charging 6 to 8% interest rates on those student loans when the government's borrowing money at 2 to 3%? The government's making money on that loan. So, so were government intentions, you know, helping kids go to college, end up creating what some would call an education industrial complex where get fancy restaurants on uh, campuses and dorms, but the kids aren't being served? I think we need to take a, a really hard look at this and really understand, like, like many problems, uh, there's no sil silver bullet to solving it. But the diagnosis hasn't been properly done. And I think, once again, we've got to take a step back and realize, one, we've got, as you said, a trillion six on the backs of these kids. We've got graduation rates that are dismal. We've got universities that have not been accountable. And if Mitch Daniels at Purdue can do it, hundreds of colleges and universities can do it as well. Healthcare costs, why are they so high? Uh, some yeah. of us believe it's the whole third-party system where 
you know, I like to point out the lousiest motel in America wouldn't dare put you in a room with another guest, a sick guest with a curtain in between. Mm-hmm. Patient is not in charge. Why, why are the costs spinning out of control? Well, I heard Senator Bennett say, if someone can answer these kind of questions, I want to give them the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. We were asking just for the presidency. So. Yeah, no, no, but, but, but here's, the, here, here's the, the issue, and it goes back to the two-party problem. The Republicans for the last 10 years have said we want to eradicate the Affordable Care Act, but they haven't offered one evidence of wanting to replace it with anything. And the Democrats now want Medicare for all, which is a $30 trillion number that is really a fantasy. So what's, what's the answer? First off, I, I, I was supportive of the Affordable Care Act and still supportive of it. However, premiums have almost doubled since it has been initiated. So we got to go back in and understand what is the diagnosis, what's the reason. You've been in business. You yeah. know the power of a consumer in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, how, the do, co- how do we get a real marketplace with effective safety nets as we do with food well, in, in health care? Well, this, first off, you've got to bring the insurance, insurance industry and pharma to the table. They're, they're not at the table as equal partners today. They're at the table as vendors who are making money on the system. As an example, the, the committee, the Senate committee, was, was holding a hearing with both the, in, the insurance agency, in, industry, and pharma. And it turned out that every senator or almost every senator on the committee turned out to be taking money from the agencies in which they were asking questions of which again, I think, demonstrates the corruptness of the system. So how, how do we get patient yeah. control? Yeah. Where well, if the well, hospital knows it doesn't uh, satisfy you, they pay a price. Tra- we, we need now tra- it, it uh, we need, doesn't we need, matter. We need transparency in the system. On pricing? On pricing. We, we, You'd we, mandate price posting prices that actually... Well, why not? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, you know, why should we not have that? The, the inability to negotiate with pharma is beyond my belief when, in fact, the Europeans are buying these pharmaceutical drugs from U.S. companies at lower prices than the U.S. consumer is today. Isn't that a trade issue? We spend $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. Governments, in effect, with all the subtlety of Tony Soprano, will come to these companies and say, give it to us cheap or we will, in effect, steal it from you. How do we get them to take more of the burden of R&D that's all on the backs of the Americans. Well, I think, again, this is, th- these are legacy issues uh, that maybe worked 10, 20 years ago that are now coming home to roost and no one is addressing it. Or PBMs. What do we have these middlemen for? It doesn't, no, no reason. But everything you're bringing up is our legacy issues that we have, been, we have refused to address because everyone has their hand in that cookie jar, and we got to get them out, and we have to have a truthful, transparent conversation and demonstrate to the American people that you are being abused as a consumer because these entities, these enterprises, for years have been making money on the backs of consumers. It's unacceptable. So how, do you have ideas? I know you're said unless you actually run, you're not going to have the uh, well, Schultz plan for this or the Schultz well, I th- plan for that. I think in that. the next three to four weeks, uh, we're going to lay out a number of very specific plans, uh, and healthcare being one of them. Uh, but I think, as you can see, when we have these kind of conversations, I'm very well aware of the problem, the runaway cost, 
uh, and the issues facing the American people that have not been solved. I mean, there, there's just no excuse for this. And I, I, all of this is based on the fact that the two-party system, Republicans and Democrats, have been complicit in allowing this to go on for years and years without addressing the problem. And now the question is, are the American people ready to have the kind of conversation necessary to address these things once and for all? As you uh, look at health care, and then I want to hit on yeah. taxes before you go. Um, on uh, health care, one of the phenomenons that may help totally transform the market is the rise of deductibles. Most companies now have gone to high deductible plans. Some of them combine it with a health savings account. But the American people now spend out of pocket on health care. Last number I saw was $380 billion a year. Huge market. Travel industries, $400 billion, just to give a context. Do you think there's going to be rising up Uber-like disruptors now that consumers have to pay in a way they didn't before to uh, bring about a transformation in, in this industry? Well, I, I think what you just described is the market is ripe for disruption. And I think that's what it's going to take. But in order for that to happen, the government is going to have to play nice. Good. On taxes. Yes. When we had a 70, I know you've denounced the fantasy of 70% tax what do you, rate. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, uh, uh, Bryce Harper, I don't believe, should be restricted <laughs> to $10 million a year. I think it's ridiculous. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is, you well know, 70%, it just distorts everything, destroys capital. It, uh, as you're going into offshore and uh, muni bonds, all the stupid stuff right. that doesn't contribute to growth, which leads to an interesting number. When we had 70%, 1980, the top 1% of income tax, not payroll tax, it's a separate issue, 18% of uh, the income taxes. Today it's 37, now it's uh, about 38, 40%. It seems if you lower the rate, you get more. You've talked about an overhaul. Any chance for a flat tax or something? I, I remember someone talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one thing we should, we should start looking at once again uh, is linking capital gains with ordinary income tax. What do you think about that? If it's low enough. Yeah. You, you could have, I'll show you my yeah. book with my plan. Yeah. Uh, you can have a flat tax, generous exemption for adults and for kids, family of four, first $52,800 of salary, free of federal income tax, and only 17 cents on the dollar above that. And within 48 months, your revenues vastly exceed what you get now. In other words, when you simplify, mm -hmm. not to, this is your soapbox, no, but I'm not curious. mine. I'm very curious. But to me, it's a moral issue, the complexity of the code today, 10 million words with all the intended rules and regulations. Right. If you go back 20 years, take the 6 billion hours a year we spend filling out tax forms, the 200 plus billion we spend complying with this thing, take those tens of billions of hours, hundreds of billions of hours, trillions of dollars, and just imagine 20 years, the new products, new services, new medical devices, new medicines fighting diseases mm. we could have had if all that yeah. brain power hadn't been wasted on this mm. thing. So that's, that's right. where I come from on it. So just so. For, for my own edification, you, you, you still believe that, a, that some sort of flat tax would be a solution for some of the issues we're facing? Absolutely. Yeah. Let, intellectual energy right. go where it should go. And at some point, I'd like to talk to you about that 
off sure. The, yeah, okay. off the record. Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to. Uh, you're not a fan of the tax bill. No, even I wasn't. even e- even though before we had about the highest sticker yeah. rate in the world. Yes, you can get around it, but that gets to the point. Why do you have all these brains trying to get around a 35 percent rate, doing inversions, and all that kind of stuff? Why not just knock it down and get focus on real things? Well, I, I, I would agree with you. We should have done more on the personal side. Yeah. But on the on the business side, wasn't that a step in the right direction to get some sanity back? It was the right step, but it was the wrong number. <laughs> so what I would have done, and if I run for president and I'm fortunate enough to be the president, what I would try and do is I think the corporate tax rate should be higher than 21. Uh, Even though when you add 5, 26, we're sort of in the middle of the pack about uh, OECD nations. Yeah, but I would would have linked that to significant incentives for educating your your employees, retraining your employees, doing more for your community, and giving you the opportunity to get to that number. But to give it away with no strings attached and then not do anything in terms of comprehensive tax reform, not do anything for infrastructure when it was such an opportunity was a significant missed opportunity. And, and you know, at Starbucks, we, we gave more than half of that tax break away. You know, we gave it back to our people. To me, it was a, a short-term, I, I, I was so against it. Even though? In the short term. But let's see what happens. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 you know, um, we're, we're, we are adding a trillion dollars of debt now to the national debt. You're aware of that. I'm uh, sure you are. Which gets to uh, entitlements. Yeah. Before getting that, then I know you got to go. Federal Reserve, monetary policy, mm-hmm. the unstable dollar, which has caused, I think, havoc over the last 40 years mm-hmm. here and around the world. Any thoughts on the Fed trying to guide the economy, talking about we may get overheated as if your income goes up, you get sweats at night, your income's going up, yeah. overheating. What, any well, thoughts on the Fed? Well, well first off, the, one thought on the Fed is uh, it is a immoral act for the President of the United States to do anything whatsoever to try and influence directly the role and responsibility of the Fed. And we, we, we've seen that play out now with Trump. Uh, it's, it's just, we, we, we have to have separation from the Fed's responsibility to the American people. Um, Even though the Fed has made numerous mistakes, how do, how do you make them accountable? Well, you make them accountable by putting the right people in place. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've had the good fortune of, of having good people there. And even though we've had good people, we've made some mistakes along the way. Huge. But, but you see the resiliency of the American economy. I think when the U.S. was the, I'm trying to get the right uh, language here, when the S&P was lowered in terms of the rating, the rating agency. 2011. Yeah. When the rating agency lowered uh, America's standing in the world, they did not lower our standing because of the economic issues. If you remember correctly, the language was, we lowered it because of our loss of faith and confidence in leadership. It was a stunning, stunning remark. And I think what we're talking about now is the leadership necessary to have economic confidence in the dollar and America's standing in the world. There is a direct correlation to the Fed, to the standing of the U.S. dollar and our standing in the world and what's in our national interest. And this goes back to the character, the morality, and the leadership of the person in the Oval Office. Quickly on foreign policy, you 
77 countries yes. have uh, facilities in. Um, how would you deal with China trade abuses? Yeah. Uh, how, 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 what's the most effective way? Uh, I'll lay my cards on the table. Go ahead. To me, a tariff is a sales tax. Yeah. They may be hurt more than us, but we're hurt too. Yeah. Are there better ways to do it? What? How, how would you deal with abuses without ending up hurting yeah. American agriculture and everything else? Well, first off, you know, going back to all the people running for president, uh, I don't think anyone running for president, including the president, uh, has as much experience in China as I do. I've done business there for 20 years and probably have been to China more than any other public CEO in the last 10 years uh, and has successfully built a great business there. Um, I agree with you 100 percent that uh, what we're now facing is a tax on American consumers as a result of this in my view, uh, very, uh, I, I do not understand the strategic intent of what we're trying to do with the tariff and the trade uh, and getting into this uh, Cold War with China. So it's in our national interest to develop a working relationship with China, recognizing that we have serious challenges with China. But China is not our enemy. China is you a- You call them and competitor. competitor. A fierce competitor. Yeah. And, you know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to become and displace us as the number one economic power in the world. And if, we, if we're not careful, that's going to take place. But we need a strong diplomatic uh, relationship with, with, with China. Do you have some ideas on uh, forced mergers, dealing of intellectual property? Well, well, I think we've got to be extremely tough with China, which we, we have been in the past, but it's been episodic with regard to... No consistency. Uh, yeah, no consistency in terms of intellectual property, in terms of human rights. Uh, but it's in China's interest to develop a better working relationship with America. Uh, but the current way in which we are trying to negotiate with China, in the same context of the uh, charade that took place in Vietnam, in terms of President Trump and North Korea, is we're not doing this the right way. This is not about a press release and cameras and a press conference. This is about serious negotiations and understanding exactly what is in America's national interest and how we're going to get there. Which leads to uh, something you've been outspoken about, Syria. Yes. So I think, listen, Syria has been a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians for years. It's really a 30 years war. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I don't want to go back to President Obama, but, you know, we, we've had this problem for a number of years in terms of what our strategy should be. But I, I think the, the way in which President Trump unilaterally announced, uh, without taking the advice of Secretary Mattis and others, to leave Syria for a number of reasons. One is the, the worst outcome here for us as a nation is to recognize, we must recognize, that Russia is an enemy of America, more so than almost any other time in the last 20 years. We now have given them a leading position in Syria and in the Middle East with Iran. The, the downside effects of that for years to come, if we're not very, very careful, are going to be damaging for the United States and our allies, and specifically for Jordan and for Israel. And so we have a terrorist issue with ISIS, false information by the president in terms of we have defeated ISIS. We know that's not true. We're leaving the Kurds to be slaughtered by the, by the Turkish government. The entire episode in terms of our leadership position in the world and our relationship with our allies 
This was such a strategic mistake. And again, demonstrates to me a lack of understanding, a lack of leadership, and a lack of truthfulness for the American people. So in terms of U.S. foreign policy, yes, you would uh, have the U.S. much more active in Europe, even if we try to get NATO to pay more, you see the virtue of uh, those alli- that alliance. I think America's role in the world today, America's leadership, America's participation, we have to understand something, and, and I know you do understand this, is our strength at home is directly linked to our role and responsibility and our national interest around the world. And any kind of strategic path towards isolationism and nationalism is not in our national interest and not in our interest at home. So we must, once again, do everything possible, which this president is not going to do, to demonstrate that we can be relied on, that we can be trusted, and that we are a friend of our allies And these allies are losing and have lost faith and confidence in American leadership. We can't allow that to stand. So bottom line on this and your whole exploratory journey is you're going to put some issues out, ideas out, but you sound like they're negotiable. Let's hear some ideas. Let's sit down and see if we can hone something. I think that's a perfect way of saying it. I think there are good ideas from Republicans and Democrats that I, would, that I want to listen to and understand that I think are workable to, for collaboration and compromise on behalf of the American people. I want to listen to the American people and understand what they're facing. And I want to do everything I can to demonstrate servant leadership, something that I've been doing for 40 plus years in which I'm walking in the shoes of the American people. Howard, thank you very much. Thank thank you for being with us. Thank you for your generosity of time. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.